Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this edition, we'll feature radio frequency mashups and the first computers in Australia. Peter Bowditch of Ratbags.com sometimes feels that he's been working with computers since the power was supplied by dinosaurs on treadmills. This week, he looks at the remarkably short history of computers and computer science and how new are some of the things we take for granted. Today I want to talk about a young science, one of the youngest sciences around. On the 24th of February this year, I attended a memorial service at Sydney University for the late Professor John Bennett. Professor Bennett gave me my first job as a programmer. I'll read an extract from a short biography that was in the program for the event. Emeritus Professor John Makepeace Bennett AO was born at Warwick, Queensland and educated at the Southport School and the University of Queensland. After graduating with a Bachelor of Engineering, Civil, degree with honours from 1942 to 1945, he served in the RAAF with the rank of Flying Officer establishing a radar unit on the Wessel Islands. He then returned to the University of Queensland to study electrical and mechanical engineering and mathematics. In 1947, Bennett went to Cambridge University to become Morris Vincent Wilkes' first research student as part of the team working to build EDSAC. This was the world's first practical stored program electronic computer and the world's first computer in regular operation from 1949. In 1953, he was awarded his doctorate for his dissertation entitled Some Engineering Applications of Digital Computations. From 1950 to 1955, Bennett worked for Ferranti Limited in its Manchester laboratory first and later its London laboratory as a computer specialist. Here he was responsible for the detailed specifications of four computers, including the Ferranti Perseus and the Ferranti Mark I, he returned to Australia in 1956 and as senior numerical analyst led the University of Sydney School of Physics team that programmed and used CILIAC, a machine built to a design based on the University of Illinois' ILIAC, which stands for Illinois Automatic Computer. During his time in the School of Physics, he was responsible for organising the teaching, operational and research activities associated with digital computing. Introducing in 1959 a postgraduate diploma in numerical analysis and automatic computing and subsequently conducting a number of courses for industry on computer programming and numerical methods in operations research. The University of Sydney recognised computer science as a discipline by creating in 1961 a chair for Bennett, the Professor of Physics, Electronic Computing. 
1972, Professor Bennett headed the newly created Bassett Department of Computer Science. And in 1982, his chair was renamed Professor of Computer Science, the first in Australia. During his tenure, he introduced second, third and fourth honours year undergraduate courses and encouraged the growth of staff and postgraduate research in his department. He continued to forge relationships with industry and actively participated in the governance of the University of Sydney, serving as Pro-Dean of the Faculty of Science from 1976 to 1977, and as Fellow of the Senate from 1976 to 1977 and from 1980 to 1984. Now let's look at computer science today. Almost every university has a department named Computer Science. Whether this is a real scientific endeavour can be debated. Does it fit the definition of science that requires following the scientific method of hypothesis, experimentation and reiteration? Or is it the synthesis of other disciplines such as engineering, physics, formal logic, mathematics, linguistics? I'm not going to get into that argument today, so let's assume for the moment that the discipline deserves the name science. As a science, it is a very new one, but one of the fastest moving that the world has ever seen. My mobile phone has a tiny removable chip about the size of the fingernail on my little finger, which holds 16 gigabytes of memory. That first computer that Professor Bennett worked on at Cambridge in 1948 held one kilobyte of memory, and it wasn't stored in a silicon chip. In fact, if you were born in the year that the transistor was patented, you would not yet be eligible for the old age pension in Australia. It's rather humbling to be part of an intellectual endeavour which is so young that many of the true pioneers are still living or have died within my lifetime. One of the eulogists at Professor Bennett's service was at Manchester working on a competitor for the title of First Practical Stored Program Electronic Computer at the same time that Professor Bennett was at Cambridge. The Manchester people claimed to have built the first one, but the Cambridge one started productive work first. This is sometimes the way that breakthroughs occur. If Watson and Crick had waited a few weeks before announcing the structure of DNA, then Linus Pauling's team might have won the race. Looking at the computers on our desks shows just how much has changed over a very short time. My elder daughter was born before the first practical personal computer was produced. The two most significant people responsible for putting those computers on our desks are still alive. And though Bill Gates has moved on to other interests, Steve Jobs was on stage last week just announcing innovations from Apple. I realise that things move fast in all areas of science, but it seems that the rate of change in computer technology is much greater. In fact, it is very increase in the power and capability of computers that has allowed other sciences to progress. There will be no genome sequencing or Large Hadron Collider without the computer power to do the calculations. I'll just give just two examples of change over the last 20 years that allowed other activities to expand and progress. When I studied statistics at university, I used an analysis program that cost the institution $100,000 and all of its functions are now included in Microsoft Excel. When configuring a mini-computer, we wanted lots of fast disk capacity, so we paid $26,000 each for 540 megabyte drives the size of shoeboxes. I've had a 320 gigabyte drive that cost $49 in my shirt pocket. It would have been amazing to be alive during the 18th century European Enlightenment when science was being invented. 
is just as amazing to be alive today. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2scr.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Into Sydney on 2SCR and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, Smooth by Derek Muller. I resist motion When two surfaces press together A force resists relative motion The new kinetic The coefficient sliding friction It's the ratio of forces Friction on Friction ain't good for us It creates waste heat And slows you down And efficiency is better If it's reduced By making things smooth But it's the force of friction That helps us move It gives us traction on the road And gets us in the Surface that can be so smooth, yeah. An interaction you can feel, and that's the best part of it. Now it depends on the type of surface that you're pressing on, independent of area. Proportional to normal force Two types of friction Static and kinetic, the lesser one When something rests stationary The force is more than if it slides down and down And if you think friction ain't good for it creates waste heat and slows you down And efficiency is better if it's reduced By making things smooth And it's the force of friction that helps us move It gives us traction on the road and gets us in the you got the kind of surface that can be so smooth, yeah An interaction you can feel And that's the best part of it But it's 
the force of friction that helps us move. It gives us traction on the road and gets us in the groove. You got the kind of surface that can be so smooth, yeah. An interaction you can feel, and that's the best part of it. And that's the best part of it. Oh, and that's the best part of it. Oh, and that's the best part of it. That was Smooth by Derek Muller. Barlint Sieber is an inventor, hacker and innovator. He's looking at mashups, radio frequency mashups. I'm talking to Barlint Sieber. So Barlint, what have you been making? I know you're interested in radio. Yes, that's right. At the moment, one could say that I'm going through a bit of a radio or radio frequency craze at the moment. I've been working on two projects, uh, both accessible via the internet. The first is a Google Maps mashup that shows you where every registered radio transmitter site in Australia is. This is called the Australian Geographical Radio Frequency Map. And the other is a aircraft tracking system which listens to the broadcasts from aircraft and shows you where they are on a map in real time as they fly through the sky. A mashup is where you're taking Google Maps and you're applying some software to overlay extra information on it. Is that right? That's correct, yes. There have been mashups done in all forms. I think one of the most quirky and uh, popular mashups of Australian government data was the public toilet map. So it actually showed you where all of the public toilets are (laughs) across the entire country. But this is... um, Is that still online? I believe that is still online, yes. Is it difficult to learn how to do mashups? Mashups, I suppose, in essence, just require you to have a good handle on JavaScript because to actually put information dynamically on top of the map requires you to do a bit of programming. And it's not that difficult to get into, and everybody has had a little bit of a go, so there are plenty of good resources available online. If you sort of want to take it further, it does get a bit more involved because if you have the data pre-processed already, then it is relatively easy to put up. But if it's in more of a raw form, then you have to process that yourself. To get back to your mashup, what's the difference between what's already available for, say, the radio frequency information on the map and what you've done? Because I saw your demonstration. You know, you showed a Google map of Australia and there were radio sources all over it that you've gotten from public sources, I believe? That's right. The government, or more specifically ACMA, the Australian Communications and Media Authority, uh, their job is to manage the radio frequency spectrum across the country. So what they do is they manage licenses uh, for particular portions of the spectrum. If somebody, say a company or a department, wanted to broadcast on a particular part of the spectrum, they would go to ACMA and say, listen, we'd like a license here. And it's actually quite difficult to get one now because the spectrum is so incredibly full. 
a friend described it um, quite neatly as a natural resource that uh, everybody wants to get a little piece of. So you've got this public list of all of the radio sources that are licensed in Australia, which presumably would include their geographical location, which is why you can put it to the map. Exactly. But that's not all you're doing, is it? No, there are a couple of other things that I've been looking into. Uh, firstly, the map is fully searchable. So once everything goes into the database, it becomes indexed so that you can search, for example, by a frequency range, you can search by a client name, you can search by a site name, or you can search by a call sign. All of the ham radio operators or amateur radio operators are also in there, and I've geocoded their um, client details, so they actually appear on the map, and I received quite a few emails from ham saying, hey, I uh, didn't know I had these hams living next door, or, or various other people saying, I always saw these massive antennas in somebody's backyard, and now I know that there's actually a ham living there. So that, that's been interesting feedback. In addition to that, recently I've also introduced this new system, which I call the uh, tile image layer system. And what that actually is, uh, is various overlays that I've rendered myself, sort of server-side, and then people can actually bring that up. And what that is, is it provides a, a good overview of various aspects of the information. For example, uh, what the rollout of the mobile network operator's mobile infrastructure looks like, or, for example, all of the new mobile towers that, that they have actually put up since late December. Another one that shows you all of the point-to-point -point microwave links between all of these sites, and that appears as this sort of giant cyan forest that uh, increases in density around all of the metro areas. And that's quite cool because you can follow how the radio information actually moves between the sites. So you can actually see the beams practically. Yes, that's right. If you've ever seen a mobile tower with um, sort of smaller satellite dishes on there, they actually point usually to other sites. And that is the mechanism through which they send all of the mobile information passing through that tower to adjacent ones and then onto the, the sort of core uh, mobile network. Wow, you can see if you're right in the path of a great deal of information. <laughs> That's right. And you've had also, you've actually been having a look at who's using your site. So who's using it? Well, I do have some sophisticated analytics going on the back end. I, I do this just to make sure that uh, the site is, is performing well and just to sort of collect statistics on, on how people are using it to improve performance. I shouldn't really delve in too much no. into the, the visitors, but shall we just say that apart from a hell of a lot of visitors from just the general public looking at, for example, where the nearest mobile towers are, there are a lot of government departments and private corporations that use it on a regular basis. So that's been quite encouraging. And there's not really anything quite like it to compete, is there? For Australia, uh, not really, no. I have seen... Another site linked to on various forum discussions, but people usually, <laughs> happily for me, post my link up quite soon afterwards saying, hey, look at this, and then the, um, the comments after that are usually quite positive toward, toward mine. And because you're using Google Maps, it's not just a map, is it? You can actually do go straight to the Google Earth and get satellite views and even street views. Yes, that's right. You can click on those buttons. I haven't actually integrated the data itself into Google Earth, that is um, one request that I receive quite often. And uh, Street View, uh, I haven't done any sort of overlaying in there. I'm and can people even check out where the defense transmitters are? As I said, everybody is on there. Everybody's on there. Cause if, so if it's licensed, it's there. 
let's say 99.9% of them are there. There well, are the ones that are publicly knowable. That's right. So all of those uh, secret agencies that have various acronyms that that perhaps we shan't list today, you can expect that they'll have various installations and and setups and antennas that probably they don't want the public to know about. And in fact, if you have a keen eye and are hypersensitive to antennas and towers like I've become now, even around the city on, on various buildings, if you have a look, you'll see various antenna arrays. And then, uh, like me, if you go home and check it on the map, you'll see that, in fact, there is no right. site there. So you have to wonder, hmm, maybe it's that's unlicensed and maybe it's not illegal. Yes. <laughs> yes. So your other work was on the aircraft. That's right. That was a aviation tracking system. And it was comprised of several parts there. And I have to acknowledge my uh, partner in crime, so to speak, Matt Robert, because he uh, actually got me onto this system and uh, generously lent his time and radio hardware for the cause. But comprises of the, the front end, which is actually this thing called a software radio. And software radio is quite amazing because what it lets you do is plug the radio directly into your computer. And you dial up a particular frequency on the radio and the radio gives you the raw information from the airwaves. If you want to create any sort of decoder, if you want to make a decoder for, say, FM radio to listen to, say, this broadcast, or the transponder information from aircraft, which is what I was interested in, you define that purely in software. And this particular radio is great. It's an open uh, source hardware and software platform, and it's known as the Universal Software Radio Peripheral by a, a company in the States called ETIS Research. And so I fed the information coming from that box into my decoder, and that listens to the short bursts from the uh, aircraft. That's actually used in a system called the secondary surveillance radar, and that helps air traffic controls actually identify the blips that would otherwise be anonymous on their screen. So it tells them, for example, the altitude of the plane, which way it's heading, what the flight number is. And that information is then collected together by the tracking app, and after a few seconds, you'll see little aircraft come up on the map and, and move around in spaces as they, they would in real life. And finally, that information is then sent through to Google Earth, and you can bring it up live in your web browser. And when you say you can bring it up live in your web browser, you can actually see the pilot's view? Yes, that's, that's it. I have this thing called the virtual cockpit view. And what happens is that you click on the plane of your choice, the camera pans down, and um, it actually positions itself inside the cockpit, as it were. You don't see any heads-up display, but you would see the view as if you looked out of the, the front window, and as, the, for example, the plane slowly comes into land, and on one of the runways at Sydney Airport, you can see the, the view slowly descend and, and come in on top. So if people want to check out your projects, where do they look? The best place to go is to my website, which is spench.net, S-P-E-N-C-H.net. And um, it's all on there. In fact, at the moment, the first two entries should be these two projects. That's pretty awesome. So software radios, are they expensive if people want to play with them? The sort of more professional, higher-end radios are. But what's so amazing about the one I mentioned previously, the USRP, is that in comparison, it's actually quite cheap. And you can do anything you want with it because it's all in software. This particular unit that we were using, you can put together for around about $1,500. And I believe that does include shipping as well. 
my unit is currently sitting in Honolulu, so I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting its arrival, hopefully in the next couple of days. And do you have any future projects you'd like to hint at? Well, there are some extensions that I'm currently putting onto the Australian Geographical Radio Frequency map. In addition to all of the data, what fascinates me is taking that data and, and visualizing it in, in different ways, gaining some sort of additional insight that you wouldn't normally be able to get. And we've been talking about specifically sites at the moment and the people that have licenses, but the interesting details there are the assignments that they're given. So they say, right, you're able to transmit between these frequencies with this antenna at this particular power level, and if it's directional, then pointing in this direction. So there are some very interesting overlays you can make with that, and uh, that's currently what I'll be rendering, but there's an awful lot of computation that has to go into this, let's say, emissions map that can be overlaid. So that's, that's currently crunching away. If people wanted to get into doing their own Google mashups, where was a good place to start for them? The best place to start is actually at Google, at the Google Maps site. So if they go there, there are a whole bunch of different pages and, and documentation related to this. And they have a gallery that actually shows you all the various things that you can do with the API. So whether it be adding markers to the map, putting overlays on, uh, and all manner of other things. They actually have user-contributed projects. So you can see, oh, this person's done this, click on it, take you to the site, and then it should give you a rundown of how to achieve the same thing. Please check out my website and, and let me know what you think. If there are um, any particular features or unusual ways of, of processing or visualizing the data that, uh, that you can think of, then uh, please send me an email and, and I'll give it a good look. Barlent Sieber, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Science is more than a body of knowledge. It's a way of thinking. A way of skeptically interrogating the universe. If we are not able to ask skeptical questions, to be skeptical of those in authority, then we're up for grabs. Wise words from the Symphony of Science. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Peter Bowditch and Derek Muller. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.